0: So we're giving them a, the very honorable, classy place to live and gives them a sense of di- dignity and, and uh, you know, a good, a good lifestyle. So for that, just seeing that and seeing the way you can change lives in some of these communities, otherwise they are overlooked um, or other people would come and buy it just looking for a money play, like, oh, how can I move the rents up without doing any work like that? That's the kind of stuff that boils my blood. So we actually want to go and do the right thing and make them nice places and make make them decent you know
1: you know at the end of the day everybody is entitled to a dignified place for their head to hit the pillow at night and you know we're trying to put that out there how do you how do you do that the most cost effective way welcome to invest for the win where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing whether you're a novice or
0: a seasoned investor tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb.
2: On today's show, we have Mark Schuler and Joshua Welch of Three Pillars Capital Group and SGRE Investments. Today, we're talking about multifamily investing. How to stay prudent in your underwriting during periods of time where it's difficult to do that, how to stay relevant, how to continue to find opportunities, how to execute business plans, what it takes to do all of that and create returns for your investors. Fantastic episode today. Mark's got over 35 years of experience. It was just a plethora of knowledge. We can talk about the Fed, the economy, and some predictions as well. So stay tuned uh, till the end because there were some really good nuggets in this episode. Thanks for joining another episode of the Invest for the Win podcast. On today's show, we have Mark Schuler of SGRE Investments and Joshua Welch of Three Pillars Capital Group. And we're talking all things, real estate investing, development, the current market. There's going to be some great nuggets coming out of this conversation today. Let me give you some background. Mark is a licensed architect in the states of Washington and Texas with more than 35 years of professional experience as an architect, engineer, business owner, and real estate investor. He's amassed a portfolio of over 500 projects in more than 15 states, which is just incredible. Josh Welt is the CEO and founder of Three Pillars Capital Group, a Houston-based real estate private equity firm, and Greenline Apartment Management, which I got some questions uh, for you on that because we started our property management company earlier this year. TPCG purchases and renovates value-add multifamily investment properties targeting workforce demographic. Very similar to things that we've talked a lot about here on the show, guys. So uh, I'm really excited to dive into some good questions today. But before we do that, uh, Mark, if you could just start us off. You know, I provided just a brief overview of who you are and some of your experience. But maybe tell us through your eyes how you got started, you know, not as an architect per se, but more in the investing space. I'd love to hear that story.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I am an architect, uh, one of those idiot savant kids who just kind of knew exactly what he was gonna do with his life from the age of like probably six onwards. And, um, and it did that for a long time. Um, I have designed, you know, like I said, over 500 projects. Uh, along the way, I worked with a lot of developers. I've designed a lot of large apartment buildings. I live in Seattle, dense urban area and uh the way apartments go up here is they tend to be apartment blocks rather than um the garden style that you see in some of the uh you know gulf states like where we invest um and so and the regulatory environment here is just off the hook i mean it is very very complicated to put one of these up um typically if you're going to develop a deal like that it's going to be three to five years probably Two to three years just on design, engineering, and entitlement. Yeah, and then uh, you know, figure an eighteen-month build and probably twelve months of Lisa. So, um, very long kind of time frame for one of these deals. Just having done enough of them, I got really curious about kind of the front end of the process. You know, as an architect, I probably come in half to two-thirds of the way into the deal sure cycle. And, you know and I'm just a hired gun. I, you know I get hired to do a specific task and see it through to the end. You know, I'm working insane hours, but uh, you know relatively speaking, I'm not making the kind of coin the developers are and I quickly figured out, you know I want to be doing what that guy's doing. Sure. You know, I'm smarter than him and I've got the background for it. and uh, you know just you know just what I'm a serial entrepreneur, I just knew that's the direction I wanted to go in. So back in 2002, I actually went back to school and uh, got an advanced degree from the UW, UW, University of Washington Foster School of Business, um, a degree in uh, commercial real estate development. And, uh, you know, it took me a while to get going, but uh, by about 2013, 14, I hit the ground running. and I've been doing deals ever since. I think I've done uh, 14, 15, 16 syndications, something like that. Um, just gets in your uh, every fiber of your DNA. And I just am a deal junkie now. So partner with Josh on a lot of those. So let me uh, let Josh take over.
2: Yeah, one question really quickly on that front. You said, yes, there is the opportunity for the developers to make that coin. But one thing you and I have talked a lot about is you also you know, expose yourself to a lot more risk. Oh, too. yeah. And so yeah. Um, you, you need to be compensated for that, surely. But one of the questions I've got here lined up for us today is, Talking about different risks on these on these projects. So, Josh, take us away, man. How'd you get started, man, in this business, and uh, maybe what was that pivotal moment that led you here?
0: Sure, very very non traditional path for me as well. Um, I actually have an engineering background, and so I did that for a number of years, kind of doing the corporate thing. And um, you know, I, I but I always kind of understood the value in real estate and the idea of you know having a hard asset that can cash flow. And not only appreciate over time, but using the value of other people's money, i.e. the bank, investor capital, that kind of thing. And so for me at the time, you know, probably call it 10 years ago, I was um, developing like a single family portfolio in Florida where I was currently living working. And it got to the point where, you know, I was, I was seeing the value in that and, and it wasn't happening fast enough, you know, so how, how can I take, 100 houses and, and, and do that more efficiently. And, and for me, the light bulb went off and I kind of realized that, hey, you know, multifamily is the way to do that. You can combine everything in one roof, you know, one landscaper, one tax bill, all that stuff, right? So that's kind of where in my head, the light bulb went off. I'm like, okay, this is what I got to be doing. And so um, I left the engineering field, um, the engineering world and started Three Pillars Capital, which is a multifamily based uh, private equity firm in Houston. That's, that's the market we, we chose to focus on. Been around for about five years, and the whole focus was on finding undervalued Class C assets—things that are usually a little bit older, a little bit mismanaged, um, outdated. And the thing for us that, again, is what I learned doing single-family is that you know you can't really—it's hard to create value if there's nothing to add value with, unless it's better management or appreciation in the market. Those are those things are hard to bank on, and when you're wrong, you're really wrong. And so we wanted to have a hedge. So the idea was, hey, we can find underserved assets, needs needs a bit of a, a, a facelift that can increase the rents and also create a better living environment for the residents there. Um, then it's a win-win. Uh, our investors make money, residents are happy they've got a better place to live. They've got something that they feel you know better calling home. They, could, they, they want a place that's, um, they can lay their head down and feel good about it, right? That, that, so that was the kind of the community focus of it. But, you know, we're also making some good money on it, good return, cash flows are great. And so we're at about, you know, 3,000 units, portfolio is about 500 million AUM. So we're doing quite well. We have our own in-house property management company. I'm sure you got questions to ask me on that, but that was kind of born out of necessity, really. We we found that many third-party managers are just really not good at their job. And we can do a lot better because we care because it's our product, you know, it's our asset, right? So we decided to form a company around that. Create our own process, procedure in the whole nine yards. So,
2: I think that's so important. I mean, we've had to do the same exact thing, and especially you know getting started with uh, smaller, scattered site, multifamily, There's really not really solid property management businesses set up for that. You can find a lot of single-family home uh, property management companies that will say, "Hey, I can, I can do that." And uh, beware, you know, if they're if you're their first client that's taking on smaller. Uh, scattered site multifamily—that's uh, that can be a recipe for disaster—and so we found very similar uh, kind of findings in regards to management and. Um, there are better, I think, um, you know, groups, if you're looking at 150 units and above, there's there's typically better um, units. But again, they're still not going to look at it usually as an owner would look at this. And some of the things that we have gone through with property management companies uh, is, is just kind of wild. I mean, one example it would be this. You know, we have a value add deal in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, the manager is doing a fantastic job of keeping it 99% occupied. Well, guess what? We don't want it 99% occupied right now. We want to be able to, you know, turn some of those units. And so they're like... But we're at 99. I said that's great, but we need to turn some of those units so we can start pushing some of those rents. Now, thankfully, in the last you know six months, twelve months, we've seen organic rent growth. Uh, but that's not going to stay always. We want to implement the business plan. The capital is there, ready to go. So it's just coaching like that. It's like you know we want to be able to to actually test the market with with upgraded units, and so just things like that. That an owner's perspective, I think you know, you can bring from a, from a management side and accountability is the other piece that we really found is, is difficult to implement when you can't positively affect change on your own portfolio. What do you do? You, you have to, you know, you have to rely on somebody else and and ask them to continue to do things. You can coach them, you can have meetings, but if the work's not getting done, it's not getting done. And so um, it's similar to make readies for us right now. You know, we've got, you know, hundred units that we need to get, you know, turned and ready to go. Well, you're just trying to find folks to show up and and do the job is very difficult. So what do we do? Well, we hired up, we started doing those make readies ourselves um, in a lot of different scenarios. So uh, I couldn't agree more. It's not the easiest track, but it is one thing I want people to hear, uh, especially if you're a passive investor listening to this um, or a passive investor thinking about being an active investor. You cannot rely on a third-party property management company uh, to, to manage your asset like you're going to want to. Um, if you think it's going to take 12 months and you're using a third party, probably going to take you two years. You know, So just things like that to, to kind of think through. So I appreciate that feedback. I'll have some more questions on, on the property management side um, here soon. But before we do that, let's take a macro view here, guys. Kind of the the idea of the podcast is kind of go through expertise, method, and predictions. And we always end with legacy. So I'll ask you guys kind of why you're doing what you're doing. And I'm excited to hear that as well. But one of the questions I wanted to ask is you guys have been in the business for quite some time, particularly you, Mark. And I know we've had a decent amount of conversations around this, but you know, you've know, you seen a lot of ups and downs. Uh, we talked a lot about you know just uh, Washington and Seattle, because my sister lived out in in Yakima for quite some time, five years out there. So um, you were talking to me about kind of the, the municipalities and the, and the restrictions on, on new development. But um, in your guys's eyes, you know, going ups and downs, we've got kind of an economy and financial market that's all over the place right now. How have you seen commercial real estate investors, you know, be successful through all these different cycles, right? I just revisited my book, my, one of my favorite books from Howard Marks, uh, Mastering the Market Cycle. It's really an introductory you know, book to understanding business cycles and market cycles and things like that. And right now we've got Mark Schuler who's been in the business for 35 years. So I'd love to hear your perspective on how you can be successful through all of those ups and downs. And what do you need to do uh, to position yourself? And you know,
1: I think it boils down to two or three items for me. Um, first of all, you have to buy right. You know, if you overpay for an asset, there's just no recovery. And um, you're seeing a lot of deals hit the market right now in this uh, crazy interest rate environment. But sellers' minds are like six to 12 months ago. They're they're thinking that they're going to get these valuations. And what they are hesitant to acknowledge is their assets are worth 15 to 20% less than they were three months ago. So, yeah, it's, you know, and so we're patient. We don't have to buy at that price and we can outweigh them. Um, the other thing that, uh, Josh can speak more eloquently about, but, uh, you only make money once you acquire an asset in operations. It's the only way you can make money. And, um, I have a call scheduled a little later today, a coaching call with somebody who's trying to break in the biz and they are trying to just do a buy and hold strategy. And, you know, that does not work it, that, you know, you have to create value where there was none before. And the only way I... I can think of in order to do that is through your operations. So you either have to rehab units or improve the opera, you know, the, the way the unit, the asset runs through a lower expense load, higher income. You got you know, you have to do, and but you have to do real value add. You can't do this airy, fairy value add where I hear a lot of people pitching deals and they want to do maybe a $5,000 lift on each unit that is supposedly value add and my response to them every time is that's not value add that's a unit term right that's what you're supposed to be doing not you know that is not value add i don't know how you're going to move the needle with something like that the final thing that i have particularly and painful experience with is the biggest risk in multifamily right now is government uh it is what i deal with in the puget sound is uh, it's off the hook. It's one of the most difficult places in the world to put up a building. And uh, it's gotten to the point where, you know, I just don't feel like doing it anymore. I've been pretty happy being an architect for a long, long time, but I just can't, you know, there's a, you know, I'm from the Midwest. I'm not ashamed to say I've got something of a libertarian streak in me. And I just can't stand, the government interference that I see coming up on every single project I do. And you know, and I expect a certain amount of that because that's, you know, it's a highly regulated industry. You know, we're dealing with life safety a lot of the time. Right. A lot of what I'm dealing with is not even close to being life safety, it's politics. And so, um, you know, uh, I think if you remain cognizant of all three of those items, uh, you can, you know, the rest of it falls into place. I mean, underwriting, you gotta have some underwriting skills and make sure that, uh, you know, you're not overpaying for your asset. But, you know, uh, operationally, I think is where it's at and just mitigation of risk. Those are the, you know, those are the two nutshells right there.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that I, I, I completely resonate with is the margin of safety when you're going in to purchase a, a property. And, um, you know, we just wrote an article today that went live out on LinkedIn. It was about the velocity of money. And, you know, somebody commented on there and said, well, Logan, how are you going to refinance and, and sell in, in today's environment? It's not our job to to think about the market timing. It's our job to force value. And if we have to hold, we have to hold with a better asset, and we can do it later down the road. But you have to be able to be uh, in a position to add value to a property. You know, twelve thousand dollars a unit, fifteen thousand dollars a unit, twenty thousand dollars a unit, and really change the cosmetic, you know, and branding of a multifamily property. So, Josh, did you have anything to to add around that? Just in regards you know, to
0: I, just a couple of points, I mark really made it difficult for me to add anything. Thanks, Mark. Um, <laughs> I will say, you know, from, from our standpoint, I think being adaptive is really critical. Um, you know, multifamily real estate a business like anything else. If you can't adapt with the moving tides of the economy, you're not going to make it right. You might survive for a couple of years, but you got to have that long term view. And what that looks like right now is the interest rate environment, right? You got a lot of guys that are still underwriting deals as if they can get a three and a half percent, four percent interest rate. It's not you're not going to get that right now. And it, so you know if you see an, if you see a deal that come your way where they're pitching a four percent uh interest rate, I mean whether they, they unless they struck, struck the holy grail or there's something else going on there, I would be highly suspect of that,
1: right? Yeah, okay. sub five exit cap.
0: Yeah. Yeah, or some crazy exit cap that's you know, four, three and a half percent, right? You're just you're not gonna see those anymore because of the way that the, the market's changing. Um, so you gotta be adaptive. The other thing is you gotta really know your numbers, right? I've seen a lot of um, recent deals kind of right around when the rates started going up and you still had guys, they were touting, you know, 20% IRR, it still can be done, but they're also going out to rent targets that were out of this world. Like if you just did a simple market survey, you'd find out that even with the Taj Mahal renovation, you wouldn't be getting that rent because the market can't support it. Maybe a few years from now it can, but if you're using the data at hand, you can't, you can't get those. So now you're having, like Mark was alluding to, you're getting some people that paid these ridiculous prices that had kind of wishy-washy underwriting saying, yep, I'm going to get these rents that are 50% higher. Great. Well, can you actually do it? And the data is not supporting that. So, um, so you has got to really know your numbers, know your market. Anybody can do an underwriting with you know a day or two of training, but to really know what can the market support, where can I push these and for how much work do I have to do to push the rents here? That's, that's most of the money right there.
2: Yeah. And I, I just had, you know, um, Jay Parsons on the show, and he's kind of the chief economist over at RealPage. And he was talking to me about something that was really interesting. He said a lot of the underwriting that he's seeing, and they have data on over 7 million apartment units um, in their own software um, and, and what they get to look at, which is a huge number. But at the end of the day, he said, look, a lot of people look at when they're doing their underwriting, the marketed rents for the area. And a lot of folks are at 99% occupied. They're just marketing these rents that might be 30, 40, 50% higher than what they're currently getting just to see if they can get it. And they don't need to get it. And so if that turns out to be in your underwriting and it turns out to be untrue, which in a lot of cases it is. You're going to be in a bad position. Right. And so, um, you know, he's he's looking at actual rents on on rent rolls, you know, which is much more, uh, you know, in tune to what we do on our on our underwriting. So I think you have to be very cautionary out there, especially with the and what, I want to get your guys' feedback on this, too. There, there seems to be a, a really big new entrant into the multifamily space in regards to uh, new players. And I'll say new players, meaning, you know, people coming out of mastermind programs or mentorship programs or read a book and, and they have, you know, the, the idea of getting into multifamily syndication um, and that creating even more com- competition out there in the marketplace for these marketed deals specifically because they don't have, you know, the the relationships that maybe Josh and, and uh, Mark and myself do that have been in the business for quite some time. And um, they're just bidding on marketed deals that, um, you know, they have no idea if that's a good price or not. And so then we have, you know, price discovery is very difficult right now. And so if you don't know your numbers, like Josh was mentioning, the intrinsic value of a property and what it actually can do, you can put yourself in a bad position. So um, I think there's that. And there's also, you know, uh, there, there's larger funds and private equity companies that have made big bets into multifamily as well, which is also causing a lot of capital. Peter Lineman, uh, one of my favorite economists and somebody that I follow very closely um, doesn't always look at just interest rates and cap rates moving in lockstep. He looks at capital flows as a percentage of new mortgage uh, debt being generated as a percentage of GDP, and that's at all-time highs, you know. And so uh, it's still at all-time highs, and so that means there's a lot of capital chasing these deals. Does that change in the in the current uh, environment? Maybe. But that capital needs to be deployed. And if it's already raised, it's already raised. And it's sitting in these funds. It needs to be deployed, which is still pushing down, I think, yields on, on properties. Any thoughts on that, guys?
1: Yeah, I think we've been in an irrational marketplace for as long as I've been in the business. Mm-hmm. And there's just too much capital chasing too few deals. And to your point, there are too many you know, people trying to get into the space because they perceive that they can make a lot of money without having, and incorrectly perceiving they don't have to do a lot of work. So, um, I had a pod an interview with Hunter Thompson on Friday about this very topic where, you know, um, you see all these new people. i I belong to a lot of Facebook groups and masterminds and people who are just getting into the business. You know, they, they're, they're doing one thing, which is they're trying to get in and make money. You know, I think both Josh and I can tell you that the last reason you get involved in this business is to make money. You know, there are lots of ways to make money that don't put you through all the brain damage that we go through. And, uh, but you know, that's the that perception. There's a lot of money to be made. It's a very male energy line of work, if you will. And so there's a lot of outsized ego involved and uh, a lot of people sort of emulating that. So, you know, it all boils down to too many people chasing too few deals and candidly bidding up prices. You know, and owners have gotten really savvy about this. So they're holding back and waiting for higher and higher offers. Um, I just got a, like a 20 asset portfolio emailed me to me today that, you know, we're going to look at, and I, I just know what the guy's doing. He's going to try to sell it as a portfolio deal and get the highest price. You know, a lot of these are in some of the, the in the singular worst area of Houston, you know, and it's like, I, you know, he bought him. I didn't, I'm not going to buy that. But, you know, there'll be a lot of people who chase that, not knowing that they haven't done their homework. Sure. So it just makes it harder for, you know, rational economic uh, decision-making to, you know, you know, you know, win in the marketplace. Ultimately it does because, uh, you know, if you overpay for an asset, you never recover. So a lot of people I'm afraid are gonna get washed out. And I hate to see that happen, but that's the beauty of capitalism, you know, the strong survive, you know,
2: so. Absolutely. Josh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I, there's there's no doubt that there's just too much money sloshing around in the system. I mean, it's been that way for over a decade now. I mean, that's why we're seeing the Fed jump in, albeit uh, a day late and a dollar short to try to fix everything. Yeah. Right? It's been this way for too long. You know, they could have done been doing this even before COVID. I mean, they tried to do it, but then they stopped because COVID happened, right? But even before that, before 20, I think it was 2017. When they started they could they should start raising it way sooner so it, we've been on a, a you know a, a punch trunk fest of low interest rate free money for so long that money's just got to work itself out of system not to mention all the stimulus that just got pumped in because of covid i mean that's trillions right there so yeah. it's going to take some time for it to work its way through but in the meantime that's where all this price discovery is happening happening people are trying to get their crystal ball out and say where rates going to be at the end of the year at the end of 2023 and it just comes back to conservative underwriting If you find a deal that works and the numbers, you know, are are solid and even at a 6% going in interest rate, right? With a, with a five exit cap or whatever those numbers are, if it still works, it still works. And that's kind of the mentality that we have is that yes, it's going to be tougher to find deals. Like hands down, like we're having to underwrite 10 times as many deals to find one that works, but that's the nature of the business. The people that can stick to their guns. And not get too jumpy because they need to do a deal for the sake of doing a deal. Those are the, those are the guys that are going to survive, and that's that's the camp we want to put ourselves in. That's where Mark's at, and I, I think I think that's what you're going to see. But yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting for the next several months as as this price discovery keeps having, the money keeps working itself out of the system.
1: You know, if I can add you know, one follow up to that, um, earlier I said the biggest risk in this business is government, and you know to follow up what Josh was saying about the Fed and the you know, the intermingling of politics and the Fed is off the hook. And I think the Fed learned through the 2008 and nine meltdown that they can like manipulate the economy and keep it going forward. Uh, You know, business cycles are a natural phenomenon. What goes up must come down. And, you know, it looks like a sine wave. We have been on a, a long expansion cycle from, you know, a decade or more that uh, you know, we need to let some of the air out of the balloon to decompress kind of the cap rate compression that we've seen. I mean, I, when I got in the business, I mean, you could find a six, seven cap deal all day long. Now I'm going down the back roads of Georgia at a dead end in a, you know, up against a river, which is an obvious you know, meth house and it's a sub five cap deal. You know? I mean, it's just like, come on, this is ridiculous. So um, I worry quite a bit about the intermingling of politics and the Federal Reserve and the way it's trying to control the economy. Um, is And now we're coming into an election cycle. You know What the hell is going to go on in the next two years? So um, I, I, I agree with Josh. I think the Fed waited too long and, and did too little initially. And now they're having to do shock value to kind of slow down this economy. Um, hopefully it works. Hopefully it doesn't last too long. Hopefully we can get back to business.
2: Yeah. Last couple of years seems like the Fed has been a little bit, um, a little bit uh, confused as what their mandate was been, has been, and, and has been forever, which, you know, is price stability and, um, you know, jobs, making sure jobs are available and low empo- unemployment. No, so the
1: number one job of the Fed is to make sure they keep inflation under control. That's right when you put the economy on a five trillion dollar sugar buzz you've got too much money slashing around in the system you know and they monitor m2 which is the you know size of the money pool in the system and it just got out of control in my opinion you know I'm not an economist but boy we are seeing some consequences of that right now I mean not entirely you know the supply chain problems this pandemic a hot war in Europe I mean it all contributes but you know I do you know I do think, we've got to rein in, in the money supply.
2: Yeah. So that leads me to a question. What do you do right now as commercial real estate investors, as private equity sponsors and fund managers um, and investors? What do you do? Do you develop in today's market? Do you stick to your guns and just be patient? Do you wait till the next buying opportunity? What, what is it that you guys are doing to stay relevant right now? I'm taking the approach and I'll just tell you guys that, um, you know, we're just getting ready, you know, still trying to find opportunities definitely are not uh, we've only purchased one multifamily deal all year, which is, is tough, but it it is what it is, you know? And we were able to lock in interest rate debt, 10 year fix at 3.6% on that deal. So it made a lot of sense for us, (laughs) Um, haven't done one since, but um, I'm curious. And we're also looking at different asset classes. We do retail and flex industrial and stuff like that as well. But what is, what is it that you're doing to stay relevant in today's marketplace and still finding those opportunities for your investors? Josh, why don't you take a lead on this one?
0: That's a great question. I guess I'm just going to have to reiterate what I said before. It's all about adapting. Um, you know, if if you stick to your guns and I'm going to use the same underwriting assumptions I did a year ago, I'm going to I'm going to be hosed, right? It's yes, I'll find deals, I can do deals, but you're only as good as your last deal in this business. Mark will attest to that. The minute you have a deal go south on you, and even if it breaks even, that's that's a scarlet letter on your track record, right? So we have a we have a very serious interest in making sure that we only find deals that will cash flow and make sense. And so at the end of the day, it just goes back to make sure you revise your underwriting templates and make assumptions that are achievable, right? And that, that means you're going to have to pass on 10 deals, so be it, right? Maybe that's where the patience aspect comes in. But, um, you know, we've, we've been in these situations before, like Mark said, cycles always happen. Um, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it rhymes oftentimes. And so we're just going to be patient and steadfast. I mean, we will find a deal. We, we have our, our goal is to transact at least two more this year. And for us, it, it might be a combination of um, some price discoveries, some people that are Maybe not doing so well on some stuff they bought last year, and we can get a great discount, right? That might be one thing. Or, um, you know, a seller who's owned it for a long time, his cost basis is still pre- pre- relatively low to, uh, you know, if, versus if he was a guy who bought two years ago, he needs a much higher exit to, to make his return. Um, so it could be a combination of a lot of things, but it, it goes back to okay, if I'm underwriting for the high interest rate with a much higher exit cap, um, I'm factoring in modest rent increases. I'm factoring in for labor cost increases, material cost increases, uh, taxes, insurance that are also skyrocketing across the board. If I still find a deal that makes sense, I can go into that deal with confidence because I've done my homework. But if I don't have confidence in any one of those numbers, I should I should either wait for more for the dust to settle and, until I've clarity on those numbers and just not do the deal. So, I mean, for us, we're still, we'll, we're still a green light. But, you know, again, 10 times as many deals as
2: before. Makes a lot of sense, and uh, I, I agree with you one hundred percent. And that and that's tough for a lot of folks that are getting into the business, right? And, and I every like like Mark has calls with folks that are getting into the business. The first thing I always say is um, when they ask, "How do I get started?" I said, "Well, just know that right now is a very difficult time to get started." So just. Uh, you know, just just understand that. And don't get impatient. You know, I, I remember reading Wayne Dyer's book, and he said, uh, one of his books, he said, infinite patience produces immediate results. And um, that's easier said than done, but uh, definitely can lend to be, be very uh, prudent in, in your decision making. When, I mean, when the-
1: follow up on that? I mean, it's a lot easier. I don't know if it's easier. But uh, you can be a lot more patient when you've got a lot more experience. And so, I understand the dilemma a lot of folks who are trying to get into the business are in right now. And, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know if I have good advice for them, but uh, other than to go out and find a partner who's got some experience, you know, so um, who can uh, share the ropes
2: yep you can still build relationships no matter what uh, is going on right still build relationships and that is extremely important relationships are twofold they bring opportunities but they also solve problems for you and uh, the latter maybe being more important than the former Um, one question i want to ask just more specifically about your guys you know uh, value add plan mark you had mentioned that you know just uh, going in and doing a, a light cosmetic unit turn is not value add In some of our previous conversations, we've talked a lot about your guys' process of actually implementing value add into your multifamily projects and controlling uh, different supply chains, which makes it uh, much more uh, beneficial for you. So can you talk through that process and what that looks like on your guys' properties? Um, Yeah,
1: I mean, we come up with a sort of a business plan for every property and, you know, we evaluate very carefully the amount of work that we need to do. I mean, we have a certain look that we're trying to achieve. I think Josh can, you know, certainly address that uh, a lot more readily than I can. But, you know, there has to be a perception on the back. You got to put your mind, in, your head in the mindset of a renter. Um, like we have a lot of internal migration within our assets because they see what they're living in compared to what we can offer them. And it's just clear that, you know, what we offer is a far superior product and not much higher price point. And, you know, so, I mean, we can go off on a tangent and talk about our social mission and what we're trying to accomplish here. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody is entitled to a dignified place for their head to hit the pillow at night. And, you know, we're trying to put that out there. How do you how do you do that on a the most cost-effective way? So, you know, I know Josh is, built an organization and there's a reason why you build management companies and construction companies. And so you can tr- control the expense side of your business. So, you know, we've got all the labor costs under control. We also have, you know, a lot of the supply chain is under control as well because, you know, Josh has got direct vendor relationships with suppliers overseas, you know. So, you know, if you can control that, um, uh, you can uh, deliver, a really nice product. But even in the most optimistic scenario, you're not gonna do that for $5,000 a tour. I mean, replacing flooring in a unit is gonna cost you 2,500 bucks a loan. Then you got, you know, appliance upgrades and paint fixtures. And I mean, you burn through five grand in no time. And so, I mean, it just, you have to have a sense of construction how to do these sorts of things got to have a member on your team who's got some construction savvy just has been around the block and and done you know either residential or apartment upgrades so um yeah the other thing i'll add to that is really depends on the market that you're in too i know i'm in a sub tertiary sub sub tertiary market my labor is just it's challenging it's really challenging i'm having a hell of a time trying to find labor to go on this project it's a lot easier in a Larger MSA where you've got a whole operation. Um, Josh, you want to speak to that?
0: Yeah, I think um, you know there was a time and a place, maybe 10 years ago, and I'm talking specifically Houston because it's a lot of my experience. Experience is where you could just replace the carpet with flooring, or just repaint the walls, or just do this one thing, and you would get a pretty big rent bump, right? That to me was a consequence of just where the market was at that time, and so I feel like a lot of these assumptions that you're seeing, especially with newer investors coming out and say, yeah, I'm going to spend five grand a door. It was based on kind of that older mindset of where that used to work. It doesn't work anymore because what's happened is a lot of this stuff, a lot of this value add stuff has been picked over, traded hands at least a couple of times in the past 10 years because of the frenzy the market's been on, that you have to do a lot more than that. And so that means your rehab budget has to go up. And it's exactly what Mark was talking about. You know, if you go in and you're, and you're already kind of top of the market on rents and you're going to change one flooring of vinyl plank. To another type of vinyl plant because it's a better color, you're, you're not going to get the same rent bump that you used to be able to right. by going from carpet to flooring. So, what we found to be very successful is we actually do a full luxury renovation. So, whether it already has the flooring um, or it's got the baseboard or maybe some one other upgrade, we go and we basically redo the entire thing because our look is very consistent across the board and it works. We've gotten the rent bumps to prove it. And so, for us, by having a consistent look, it's standardized, there's a process behind it. Um, we're doing most things that all the things that most people can't do because they can't get the cost basis. But I can tell you one thing, it's not $5,000 a door. (laughs) It's a lot (laughs) higher than that, but you know, we've, we've gotten the rent bumps to to prove it. So we'd rather go overboard and give the luxury look and know that we're going to have a darn good chance of getting the rents we need. than by risking it, by doing one thing that used to work, doesn't really work anymore. So we, we kind of go overboard with, with our renovation.
2: Any, um, just with uh, crazy rent increases that we've seen organically happening uh, through the United States, Uh, Kansas City about 7.2%, I think nationally over 17%. Um, Have you guys taken a step back on any of those renovations and just tested to see what you can get by doing less? Or what is your methodology around that?
1: You know, what you're describing is the rising tide raises all ships phenomenon. I don't do business that way. (laughs) You know, I, that's not value add. And you are betting on forces that are well out of your control. And if you bet wrong, you're hosed. And sure. I'm not, and you know, I don't like giving up that kind of control personally. Also, I'm not willing to risk it in my investors' money on, you know, a gamble on, I'm betting on the comp. You know, it's, it's not a sustainable business model. And so, I mean, people want to do that, go knock your brains out, but I'm not going to do that. I have to create tangible value to justify the rent increase and the increase in, in the profit margin that I'm going to earn on the, on the deal. I have to pay profits to my investors. So uh, you know, think I'm going to wait on the market to raise the rents when there's a hot war in Europe, you know, and Europe's going to be without natural gas this winter. It's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. You know, I figured that was quit. the
2: case. I figured that was the answer. And it also just, it also delays your business plan. You know, if you're going to go sell and whatever the time frame is, five, seven, 10 years, um, you know, having a, a nice product like you guys are talking about, there's you're going to get probably a better price, right? I mean, um, that's just all there is to it. And now the
1: millionaire maker is when you can combine a rising market with value add. That is like exponential growth in the value of the asset. Why would you leave all that money on the
2: table? Yep, makes complete sense to me. Um, Okay, so let's move into some predictions, guys. So I want to just ask, uh, this is one of my most fun, uh, you know, parts of the podcast, and I do get to have a lot of economists on and and talk to them quite a bit. But um, from each of you, just a top prediction in commercial real estate, let's just focus on multifamily as a whole. um, Next six to 12 months, what is your guys' top prediction? It could be around prices. It could be around rent increases. Yeah. Um, let's At
1: start. Like, Nash and I talk about this every week. Um,
2: I figured. Want th- to go first, Mark?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think big <laughs> picture, we're going to have to just gut it out. The next six months, you're going to see. I think there's going to be carnage next week when the the Fed meets again and raises rates. Uh, you know, the bet is is it going to be three quarters or a full point, and you know, Canada. Three weeks ago, I think raised it a full point. You know, giving, you know, precedent to the Fed. So I think they're going to raise it a point, and uh, that is a real shock to the system. It is also an act of desperation, and uh, the last thing free market economies like to see is uncertainty. And boy, you are really seeing a conveyance of uncertainty there. So I just think it's going to go gonzo, gonzo, nutsoid here for the next month or two and then it'll settle down and i don't know if you look at chatham reports but uh you know i I think sometimes those guys are a little rosily optimistic but uh you know it's gonna like start settling down and by first quarter of next year i think it's going to be you know you're not going to see all this turmoil in the marketplace you know and then from there we just have to squeeze the inflation out of the marketplace i i You know, that's just going to take time. So I think, you know, one to two years we're looking at this and it was unnecessary, in my opinion. So um, I don't know. What do you think, Josh?
0: Yeah, I I think the next six months is price discovery. I think nobody really knows where, how far things can go. My my guess is going to be maybe 10 to 15% of a pullback on on assets, Um, but it could go further if the Fed decides to keep their foot on the gas pedal, because that's what everybody's looking at. Then they could go for they could go down even further. Um, but 10 to 15 is where I would peg it at. I think from the moment that anybody has clarity, the Fed is gonna stop raising rates. Then I think there'll be another period of is that really real? Is it is it true? <laughs> I'll give another six months of the Fed not doing anything for people to believe that they're done, and yeah. then things would probably start to get better. So I would say 10 to 15% pullback, probably give it a year. From that point, you could expect to see cap rate compression again, but I think you're gonna have slight expansion in the meantime. I don't think it's gonna be a crash like it was <clears throat> pre 2008. It's not the same set of dynamics that's causing yeah. this time. So there will be some cooling off, but it's not gonna be panic mode. I run for the exits. I think there'll be more pressure in the stock market uh, probably to the end of the year. And then we should see probably a bottom by the end of the year. But that's, again, if you're asking for your pure prediction, that's my guess.
1: Yeah, we're not gonna see the big short, I can tell you that.
2: Yeah. So with that prediction, there comes probably some opportunities, right? Lots of folks maybe that have their debt maturing in the next you know year uh, or so. What are they going to do? And I don't think it's going to be a, a huge opportunity. I think it's going to be fragmented. But folks like yourselves and myself that have boots on the ground, they're going to find opportunities. Um, I really do believe that. And I also believe a lot of folks who bought at the last 12 months, maybe 24 months, um, may find themselves in a position that um, they're not getting those rent increases and um, some debt covenants may not be uh, fulfilled. So there might be some opportunities there as well. So uh, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Um, I think multifamily is a huge uh, opportunity um, just from a macro standpoint. And I have I am uh, very bullish on multifamily. I, I'm really excited about uh, the future of it, but um, these, sh- these kind of short blips that we have to go through and navigate can, can kind of cloud the water. Let yeah,
1: me follow up on what you said, Logan. You know, um, This is the third major economic event we have had in the last 12 or 14 years. Mm-hmm. For five to six of those years, housing production has been taken offline. I was just reading reports yesterday about the complete collapse of house- you know, single-family housing production that's going on right now. Absolutely. And, you know, we are, as a nation, millions and millions of units of housing behind schedule. That's why you're seeing the price of housing skyball everywhere. There's just not enough supply to meet all the demand. I mean, just because, you know, the economy melted down, you know, three times doesn't mean household formation stopped and people stopped having kids, you know? So if you look at the production of housing and compare that to population growth in the country, you're seeing a divergence of the curves. And that's just putting upward pressure, uh, pricing pressure on housing units. All those people who can't afford a house, they gotta be renters. Well, guess what? The regulatory environment nationwide is robust. It's harder to build apartments than it was 10, 15 years ago. Right. Dirt is a lot more expensive Um, The green initiatives, I can tell you what it cost me to meet the current code for a house, it's astronomical. And so it's it's all just getting more expensive, which is tamping down the production of housing nationwide. I don't know where we're going to end up out of all this. What I can tell you is um, housing affordability is, you know, outside the reach of a lot of folks in this country. And I'm worried about that. I mean, that's a recipe for revolution. So um, I'm not a, you know, naysayer, or, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not predicting that, but, you know, a lot of people are dissatisfied that they can't achieve a house. They can't buy, you know, pursue the American dream. If you don't have that in this country, what do you got?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, right that's now, i about. about that quite a bit uh, with the changing world order. So I appreciate that, uh, guys. It's never an easy question, but it's always a fun one to go through. And I appreciate your insights. Uh, Let's let's wrap this up, guys. What inspires you? Uh, Mark, I heard you just about to mention it earlier, but why do you guys do what you do? Let's start with Mark. Well, you know, I do it
1: for three or four reasons. One, I'm just a serial entrepreneur. Um, I am not wired to work in a large corporate environment. Never have been. Never have done it. Never wanted to do it. You know, Um, so I enjoy getting into the mix quite a bit. I like being the quarterback. Um, and, uh, that's what you got to, you know, the guys are real successful in this business. I mean, I, to a person, they'll all tell you the same thing. And, you know, they love the, the, the beauty of the game. So I enjoy it from that perspective. Um, I have my social mission that, you know, I wrote my essay to architecture school 45 years ago, whenever it was about affordable housing. And, you know, so I finally am doing what I wanted to do 45 years ago. And I feel good about it. And I, and I enjoy it. I get up every morning and I can't wait to slay the dragon, you know? So there's that aspect, you know, and then, you know, I've got five grandkids. now. You know, that's the legacy I'm trying to build, mm-hmm. um, provide for their future and leave them all something. I mean, I could easily have long ago sailed off and, you know, enjoyed myself lying on a beach somewhere. And it just, I, you know, give me two days in that and I'm just tired of getting sand in my swimsuit and want to get back to work, you know. So, um, you know, I know that's kind of long-winded, but that's why I do it, so. Yeah. I appreciate that. Josh, how about you?
0: Yeah, for me, I, I, it's um, it's it's the transformative nature of value add. I think that's what really gravitated towards yeah. me, towards it, because I, um, I mean, I could tell you tons and tons of stories of acquisitions we've done, takeovers, where it's been, you know, had been mismanaged for decades. Um, you know, the, the owner had owned it for so long that he really had no incentive to make it better because he was already doing pretty well from a cash flow standpoint. You know, had no debt on it, right? We've had tons of those stories. And you just see the lives of these people and the units they're living in. And the rents are pretty low, so I get that part, but they just weren't happy. You know, you could tell that they were there because they had to be there. So for us, you know, making it a really nice place, something that these people are proud to call home, um, you know, something that they couldn't otherwise get unless it was double what they're paying in the rent, right? We don't have to go up that high on our rents to get get our returns. So we're giving them a the very honorable, you know, classy place to live. and gives them a sense of di- dignity and, and uh, you know, a good, a good lifestyle. So for that, just seeing that and seeing the way we're, you can change lives in some of these communities, otherwise they are overlooked, um, or other people would come and buy it just looking for money play. Like, Oh, how can I move the rents up without doing any work like that? That's the kind of stuff that boils my blood. So we actually want to go and do the right thing and make them nice places and make, make them decent, you know? So,
1: you know, two weeks ago, I toured all our properties in Houston and I uh, was talking to the property managers at every property. I was really trying to get the inside story of each property to a manager. They were all, telling me how excited the tenants were to have these units, you know, and the program that we're executing come online. They just couldn't wait to get, you know, and I probably heard that six times in one day. So, you know, that's the empirical evidence. I feel like we're doing the right thing. You know, second, what Josh says, you know, that's really why I, you know, big part of why I do it. I mean, I'm not going to talk about, you know, you know white man's complex here or anything like that. But you know, it it really does. I mean, you got to want to get up in the morning and do something beyond yourself. And you know, I have particular skills that allow me to do this. And yeah, you know, it just uh, that's a legacy I can leave behind and feel good about it. So
2: absolutely. Thank you guys for sharing that. Um, One thing that uh, I always like to do is point people back to where they can find more information about both of you. So Mark, if people want to find more about you guys, where should we point them and uh, so they can learn more about these opportunities that you've got?
1: Yeah, um, you can navigate over my website, sgreinvestments, plural, uh, dot com. That's .com. S-G-R-E is short for Schuler Group Real Equity. Um, and you can just hit me up at mark at sgreinvestments.com. Yep. Awesome.
0: And uh, so our company, Three Pillars Capital Group, three spelled out like the word. So three pillars, plural, capital group.com. And uh, my email is Josh W at three pillars, capital group.com.
2: Fantastic. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the time, the insights. I know our listeners will find this valuable. I surely did. And I always learn something talking to you, Mark. And it was great to meet you today, Josh. And thank you well, guys for being on. Thanks for having us. Thanks.
0: Thank you for tuning in to invest for the win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.